everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Proud to Work in Cannabis podcast. We've been testing out a lot of different formats, and it's been fun when we have two guests on who can collab on various topics. So I'm really excited today to have Jeremy Burke, who is a returning guest. He is the founder of Cultivated. We'll talk about where you can subscribe there. And we have Bo Whitney, who is the chief economist at Whitney Economics Firm, the firm that we partner with on our annual jobs report, and they just came out with their business conditions report. Thank you guys both so much for being here today. How are we doing? Doing pretty good. It's good to be back here, Carson. I appreciate uh, you asking me on after a couple months. Yeah, and I appreciate the opportunity to present as well. It's great. It's been great to work with you and your team. Let's kick off. Bo, you recently put out the business conditions report and where you surveyed a lot of cannabis businesses across the U.S. and really gave a good pulse on the space. I want to read um, a couple quotes from the summary. So, So we'll start out with, overall, the industry is running on fumes with little left in the tank. Investors have pulled back, the consumer behaviors have changed, and regulators have a stranglehold on the cannabis operators. The culture is not business friendly and growth opportunities are hard to come by. Operators have had to learn how to do more with less. Despite the perception that the industry is flush with cash, last year 10 out of 36 states that have cannabis regulatory programs experienced negative growth. Less than 25% of U.S. operators reported they were profitable. The bottom line for U.S. cannabis operators in 2023 is that the overall short-term outlook is poor with conditions projected to improve in 2025. I read that and I kind of had like my stomach kind of dropped uh, a couple times when I read the summary of that report and particularly the part around only 25% of U.S. cannabis operators are profitable. Um, You know, Bo, when you were doing this report, writing this, reading this, what was going through your mind? Because this this is pretty shockingly bad and probably worse than I thought. Yeah, well... You know, we've done a series of these surveys uh, for the last few years, either on the hemp side or on the adult use medical side, uh, and both segments of those industries are uh, having a difficult go of things. Um, last year, 42% were profitable, meaning the other 58% were either breaking even or not. Um, and we thought that, you know, as the business conditions have changed, there's been supply chain issues, there's been uh, increased labor costs, input costs. We thought that profitability would go down, uh, just not as much as it actually ended up um, coming out to be. You know, 24.4% is a tough number. Um, it's a combination of things. It's um, it's the fact that there were supply chain issues uh, due to COVID, uh, there was increased input costs, labor costs, a lot of costs, startup costs, um, even financing costs because the Federal Reserve has increased uh, interest rates. Those costs have gone up. And at the same time, there's been oversaturation of supply. And so prices have gone down. And so you've got revenue going down due to pricing decreases and costs going up. So the operators are being squeezed in the middle. And as a result of that, it's had all of these different impacts. There's been less hiring. There's been uh, less profitability. uh, There's been a lot of consolidation and people selling out. 
Um, and then there's not a whole lot of growth to be had. Like I mentioned in the report, you know, 10 states had negative growth. But even in the states that just deployed new programs, they are um, not growing as fast because it's tough for operators to get started. So all of this, um, this confluence of factors have really had a negative impact on the overall industry. And they're, the sentiment, a lot of the, it, it's showing up in the quantitative or the numbers, but it's also showing up in the written comments, the qualitative data. And a lot of them are beat down. A lot of them are frustrated. Uh, they are looking for help. Um, and a lot of the help that they're looking for cannot come from the states. It has to come from the federal government. And so one of the areas that's super important is federal taxation. Which brings me, so you, you have all of these challenges that you just described, whether it's um, supply chain or limited capital moving into the market or increased labor costs. I mean, hard time for a lot of businesses. And then you layer on 280E, which why I wanted to have Jeremy here is because follow Jeremy on Twitter. Everybody should. Tons of info coming out of that Twitter account. And Jeremy recently went deep on the history of 280E, which I thought was one of the most interesting newsletters, Twitter threads. So if you haven't read it, we'll talk about it today. But Jeremy, can you, first off, like, how did you even figure out like, they walk us through how you went down the rabbit hole and then what you discovered about 280E. Yeah, it was actually uh, Bo's report um, that, that I had seen. And, and I was thinking a lot about um, some of the sort of uh, uh, qualitative factors Bo had mentioned about sentiment to the industry and like, what, how do I tell a story about this and, and how do I make it make sense? Um, and so I really took the headline number from Bo's report, like that cannabis companies are paying so much extra tax and a lot of that is federal tax and they're getting absolutely no help from regulators both in states and as well as the federal government because it's you know frankly illegal um i've been reporting about the cannabis space for a long time um you know we, you you think of the 280e tax as this received wisdom in the industry when you talk about it to investors to companies everyone kind of knows what you're talking about um but when I started to think about it, and I had been thinking broadly about, um, you know, how to tell the story, I was like, I don't really know where this came from, or why it exists, or how it exists, and why it continues to persist. Um, so I basically just went down a rabbit hole. I mean, I started as you know all reporters do on Google, um, and you know, I I basically found the the long story. I found some primary source documents about the cases. Um, I had my fiance who's currently in law school helped me interpret some of the fact patterns and things that I don't really have expertise with. Um, but the story really starts. I mean, I, I don't know if, if the people who, uh, you know, were litigating these cases, the judges or even Congress who acted after the case was finished knew what impacts they would have decades later, how these small changes would kind of ricochet over history. Um, the story in, in the simplest term, there's this guy in the 1970s, Jeffrey Edmondson, uh, he lived in Minneapolis. He was basically a drug dealer. Um, he, he sold cocaine, methamphetamine, uh, marijuana. Um, he was caught, as, as a lot of drug dealers are. Um, after he was caught, the IRS levied something called a Jeopardy assessment, which basically they, they, they do that if, you, if they think that you're concealing taxable income. Um, drug dealers often don't keep their books for obvious reasons, and so... Uh, the IRS wanted to extract some taxes out of him. They forced him uh, to account 
for everything that he had bought and sold prior to his arrest. Um, that included, you know, the cost of goods sold, which is basically an accounting term for how much it costs to produce what you're selling. So he, he did that pretty diligently, which, which is pretty interesting, I thought. Um, you could read it all in the case. He said things that, like, he drove 29,000 miles, like, that was for work. He took a business trip to San Diego uh, to meet some of his suppliers. He paid $250 for airfare. He bought a $50 scale to weigh the drugs he, he got on long-distance phone calls. Um, he actually also tried to include his apartment, which he said he used as his place of business. So ultimately, he, he estimated that his COGS, or cost of goods sold, was around $105,000. Um, he settled on trying to deduct $30,000 of that. Um, the IRS obviously said, you know, had not been in this position before, said, no, you can't do that. You have to pay taxes on your, your gross income, not your net income. Um, he, he, you know, Edmondson, credit to him or credit to whatever lawyers advising him, took it all the way to court. The tax court actually ended up siding with him. There's some funny details in there. They said, you know, the judge said something about Edmondson's appearance and candor at trial that, you know, they believed he was honest and forthright and that um, he should be allowed to deduct these expenses. Um, so ultimately he did. Uh, and then in a later criminal trial, the story didn't really end well for him. He, he got sentenced to prison uh, four years for, for selling cocaine. Um, and, and when Congress really looked at the outcome of this case, and I'll, I'll try and wrap this up pretty quickly here, you know, they there was some thinking that these tax deductions and, and throughout sort of regulatory history that they exist um, as a matter. And the word is legislative grace, like Cong it's up to Congress, up to the legislative branch to decide what businesses can and can't deduct. Um, and so they changed the rule. They said, look, we don't want guys like Edmondson. We don't want drug dealers to deduct their expenses. And so we're going to create this rule. We'll call it 280E. And that means that anyone who's selling a scheduled, a federally controlled substance cannot do this. Um, what Congress obviously did anticipate was that states, numerous states would legalize cannabis and that the 280E tax would persist for companies that are ostensibly legal. I say ostensibly legal because, you know, they're, they're legal by the state, not the federal government. And so we're kind of left picking up the pieces of this law that was a bit of a throwaway law from Congress. It was, it was passed in 1982. Um, and it hasn't changed since. And, you know, efforts to change it have, have been very slow so far. You kind of have to give it to Edmondson. I love the golf. Um, just reading through the case, I mean, it's just, it, it's very fascinating the way he went about it. And, you know, I'm sure there was lawyers helping him, but he really did account for everything, like down to the nitty gritty detail of the $50 scale used to weigh, weigh your drugs. I mean, that's, um, you know, even big companies would probably forget to put $50 on, on the books and then he didn't, so... Um, you know, you, you got to admire that for sure. Uh, but unfortunately, the business trip, the business trips, the apartment, yeah, the, um, the whole operation. So just to make sure that I'm understanding it correctly. So essentially now we have cannabis businesses and they're taxed on their total gross revenue. That's, that's my understanding. Right. And most businesses are taxed on net, um, which means they can deduct the cost of goods sold. Um, and so, you know, cannabis companies have various different costs. Um, but obviously, you know, e even though, um, there are economies of scale, like it's still ex slightly expensive to produce to, to, you know, indoor grows, like there are a lot of costs associated with this. And so their margins as price falls, like Bo said, are just shrinking and shrinking and shrinking ever more. Um, and there's no relief for, at the federal level. And Bo, based on the work that you've done, um, 
if, if you're running a, let's just call it, let's say a tulip business, you produce tulips, obviously you don't have 280E and then you're a cannabis business. Like, is there any way for you to attempt to quantify like as a percentage, how much revenue they're losing as a result of this tax? Yeah. You know, um, where 280E hits cannabis businesses the hardest is at the retail level because they have all of this infrastructure that they need to put in place, you know, security, compliance, software, labor, um, and they're not able to deduct that. So basically the only thing that they're able to deduct is their product acquisition costs, which, you know, so, and a lot of times retailers will buy something for a hundred dollars and sell it for $200. It's just like the standard model that everybody works with. Um, you're able to deduct a lot more at the uh, product manufacturing, the processing, and the cultivation side. So where it really hits uh, hard is the retailers. Why is that? If you're, why are so the cultivators don't have two eighty or? Well, there, there, there are more things that they can deduct that is um, directly related to the production of their products, right? And so you know, so they can deduct their electricity, for example, or their water or what have you, because that goes directly into the uh, production of their, of their product. But at the retail level, the only thing that really goes into the production is the product acquisition itself. Um, And so, I mean, even marketing and legal fees and stuff like that cannot be deducted at, um, at the retail level. And so as a result, their effective tax rate which for any other business would be, you know, federally 21% um, because you, um, you can deduct all these deductions and then whatever is left from your net revenue, then you uh, are taxed on it at the federal level. Because you're not afforded that luxury at the retail level, um, the effective tax rate in some instances will approach 70 or 75%. And so when you're giving so much money, so much of your revenue, um, to the federal government in the form of taxes, then it's really, really difficult to become profitable because there's not much left at all. And we've actually looked, we've actually looked at the impact. And overall, for the industry, last year it was between 1.8 and 1.9 billion dollars of additional taxes that they paid uh, that they wouldn't normally have paid if they were treated like any other ordinary business. And that 1.8 billion could go towards hiring people, expanding, opening in new states. And so while maybe to the government, it's like, oh, this is great. This is tax revenue that's coming in that we can use for schools or whatever they're going to use it for. I mean, the reality is, is that as we discovered, Bo, in our jobs report, last year was the first year that legal cannabis jobs declined. People are doing more layoffs. I mean, Jeremy, you cover cannabis hiring and layoffs all the time. Of course, I live and breathe it every day. But Jeremy, from a reporting perspective in terms of what you're seeing real time, like this $1.8, 1. $1.9 to me, it feels like cannabis businesses desperately need that that revenue and money. Yeah, look, I mean, I you know, I, I guess I can say now I'm sort of in the cannabis industry as, as someone who's covering it and launching launching my own publication. And, and um, it's it's quite difficult. I, I feel for a lot of these employers, uh, Carson, like you said, who don't have the ability to, you know, take some profit out and, and reinvest into the business, right? Um, it really hurts sentiment. Um, I think it hurts the willingness of people to take risks and, and be entrepreneurial and create jobs and do all the things that uh, 
we want to look for with with economic growth and with new industries. And so, uh, you know, my my message here is is that there is definitely absolutely a need for relief, um, and that 280e is one of the key ways that the federal government can do so. Um, it's it's an easy fit. It's, not an easy fix, but it's a, it's a quicker fix than some of these other broad scale reforms that people talk about. You know, one of the reasons why 280E was was enacted was to dissuade people from participating in illicit activity. Mm. And so it was meant to be punitive in nature. Um, and it was interestingly passed on a unanimous voice vote. So nobody opposed this at the time, but that was 40 years ago. And so as a result, nobody anticipated that there would be these state, you know, deployments of legal cannabis and these great experiments state by state. And so although cannabis policy has evolved at the state level, it hasn't evolved at the federal level, in particular with 280E. Does 280E only apply to Schedule One drugs or what if, if, if cannabis was, does anyone know that? Yeah, it's Schedule One and Two. Um, so that, that's my understanding, I guess, if, if cannabis was moved to schedule three, it would not apply. Um, please don't quote me on that. Everyone should sure. sort of look for themselves, but that's my understanding. Yeah, back check. Yeah. I mean, it's just pretty crazy for people that actually, if either of you are experts on this for people who are listening, who may not know, can you just explain like schedule one, schedule two, and just how cannabis is basically taxed the same as or classified the same as like heroin. I mean, it, it, it is pretty insane. Yeah, I, the 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 key distinction is that Schedule One drugs are considered drugs with no researched medical benefit. I, I think that's patently untrue and provably untrue with with cannabis. Um, cocaine, I believe, is Schedule Two because there are considered some medical uses for it. Clearly, it is a much worse drug for consumers than than cannabis is um so it's not it's not really a very factual system it's archaic and it needs updating to say the least it's so archaic i mean think about how many people die every single year from cocaine and think about how many people die from cannabis i mean right exactly so by cannabis moving from schedule one or schedule two 280 goes away is there any other ways that 280 goes away yeah, the, uh, you know, the president could deschedule or reschedule. Uh, the IRS or Congress can change their tax policy. Uh, the, the thing about Congress changing the tax policy is uh, of the people that I've spoken to, they've said, well, well we're not going to give tax breaks to a bunch of potheads. <laughs> and so that's the general sentiment of, you know, of the Congress right now, you know, very simple, simply put. Um, and also there was uh, some research that was done very, very early on in this industry um, post-legalization in Colorado and, and Washington. And there was some scoring done of legislation. And they said that if you gave tax breaks to the cannabis industry, it would end up costing the federal government, you know, five or six billion dollars. Well, the way that they did their analysis, because of course I've looked into this, is that they looked at it just from a very static perspective. You know, they didn't look at the increases in employment. They didn't look at the increase in payroll taxes or the decrease in, in uh, pricing for retailer, which would increase legal demand. They didn't do the dynamic scoring. They just looked at it from a static perspective. And as a result, of course, there's going to be negative. And because it was deemed negative 
uh, a negative draw in the treasury, then that got stuck in the craw of a lot of legislators to the point where they're automatically a no vote until you can convince them otherwise. So there's a lot of education that needs to be done at the federal level and the congressional level in order to get their, you know, mental mindsets changed to be more receptive towards the dynamic scoring strategy rather than the static scoring. Bo, bringing it back to your report, I want to just like double click on one of the pair, one of the bullets that you put in the executive summary around how you're predicting that um, conditions are projected to improve in 2025. What brought you to that conclusion that 2023, 2024 are going to continue to be rough and things will get better in 2025. Yeah, thanks. So the reason we're not forecasting much movement in the market, we're still seeing growth, but just anemic growth um, until 2025. It's because of this one, um, the mature states like Oregon, Colorado, California, Washington, they're seeing either negative growth or very low growth. Um, And so there's not a whole lot of you know, growth to be had in those mature markets. The newer markets, say like Michigan or, um, you know, Arizona, New Mexico, they've already um, deployed their markets and they're starting to see that legal capture, the consumer starting to participate legally. Where a lot of the uh, growth normally occurs is in new markets like New Jersey or New York. And during the last year, um, the Federal Reserve has increased interest rates. And so it, it makes the cost of capital much more expensive. And it makes it more difficult to acquire. And so you've got these increased costs. And at the same time, some of these deployments have had their hiccups. And I'm being generous when I say that. And so you're not deploying. It's more Uh, it's more expensive to deploy and and get started up. And then it's really more difficult to find capital. So as a result, this is delaying or suppressing the growth and expansion of these new markets. Add to that, that the Federal Reserve is continuing to increase interest rates, even though inflation is starting to abate right now. But they're still talking about increasing, and they're not going to be able to unwind this all until they start in 2024. So it's going to take some time for this whole financial interest rate things and to unwind. And in the meantime, investors would much rather just deposit their money into a bank, have it collect 5% interest and have it relatively risk-free rather than go into a market where, you know, you've got um, a lot of uncertainty uncertainty in terms of inventory, pricing, growth, expansion, market opportunity, you name it. And and so because of that uncertainty, the high costs and the slow amount of deployments in new markets, that's why I'm saying things aren't going to uh, really improve in that regard until 2025. And for the people that make it through to 2025, which there might not be a lot because it's it's seemingly going to be a hard road. How bullish are you about what happens after 2025 for the space? I mean, you're the smartest economist that I know that looks at this space all day, every day. So is, is there a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow for a lot of these operators that can make it through? 
Should 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 Jeremy start a business in the cannabis industry when he gets out of business school, or or what's happening here? Yeah. Well, <laughs> what we saw very very uh, distinctly within the survey and within the report, um, the data was very very clear. Is that because the industry has had to pivot and pivot and pivot again? A lot of the operators that are in survival road mode right now they are able to do more with less. And so those that have a real narrow focus, those that are disciplined in their cost structure and their approach to business, those that have plans, those that have the contacts within the industry, those are gonna be the survivors. The one that, the operators that lack discipline, lack access to finance, um, don't have the contacts, that they need in order to operate within this space because it's still relationship based. Um, those folks are going to be the ones that are um, that are not going to be around in, in the next couple of years. So the ones that do more with less, they have at least an opportunity to survive. But a couple of things need to take place at the federal level um, because they just can't go on and on and on, um, you know, uh, forever you know, in the current environment. It's just not conducive towards success. Jeremy, based on the interviews and conversations you're having, of course, this is um, a little bit more anecdotal, but the conversations you're having align with Bo's report? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, there, there, it's not always it's not always a negative for, for operators to have to understand how to deal with tough times, right? They can sort of focus on the core aspects of the business that work um, and, and emerge from those stronger, right? Um, you see a lot of really good companies created, broadly speaking, in economic recessions, et cetera. You know, at the same time, I think the general level of interest and excitement that I can speak relatively authoritatively at this topic as a journalist who covers the space, like people outside the industry are not very interested in the work I'm producing right now. Uh, three or four years ago, that was not the case. Uh, it was one of the sort of hottest subjects in any financial media publication. Um, you know, anecdotally, I think that's a sign that um, it's a bit of a quiet period and people have to put their heads down and, and figure this out. Um, at the same time, you know, I, I try and see the forest of the trees at a personal level. Like I am starting a publication that is specifically covering the cannabis industry. So, you know, in, in my personal view, for whatever that counts for, the long-term thesis remains intact. More and more states, more and more global jurisdictions will legalize cannabis. More and more people will use it. People have used this substance, this drug for hundreds of years. Um, you know, there is a built-in market. It is not cryptocurrency, right? It is not a fad. Um, at the same time, I think, you know, we need lawmakers to think a little bit more rigorously, uh, as Bo said, about how to stimulate the industry, how to help it, and to take it seriously. Um, you know, I, I try not to be cynical, but I'm, I'm skeptical sometimes of how much uh, lawmakers and, and people that work for them outside of you know, a select few really take the time to understand this issue. I think they brush it off as like, oh, these are just potheads not realizing, you know, the far reaching implications of how big of a social policy change this is, all the economic opportunity it creates, and not to mention criminal justice reform as well. Um, so to sum up, I, you know, I think the long term thesis remains, but it, it's very challenging for, for many people right now. Yeah. And this is an issue that 
that impacts small businesses, women-owned businesses, minority-owned businesses, um, and it impacts them the hardest. But the large operators, the multi-state operators are not immune from this. A lot of them are not even making any money because they're, uh, you know, 20, 30, 40 million dollars a quarter goes to 280E taxation. 20, 30, 40 million dollars a quarter to 280. I mean, for anybody that thinks it's not, I it's interesting because I actually was uh, was talking to someone about this and like, well, well, how much of a, you know, difference could it actually really make uh, being taxed off gross versus net? And I mean, like you just said, Bo, 1.8 billion last year. And for some of these MSOs, 30, 40, 50 million dollars a quarter. I mean, I, I I mean, I run a hiring business. I just before we got on this call was on the phone with a large MSO doing a big another big reduction in force. Like it's happening. People are losing their jobs and like with 40, 50 million dollars a quarter, you could be hiring so many people. Yeah, the if you think about it, you know, the total legal market for cannabis legal market is roughly the size of all the chicken that's sold in the United States, right? Just for perspective, (laughs) all the chicken, right? So if 75% of the chicken ranchers, chicken farmers were in distress, you know that the federal government would come in and bail them out and they would change their policies to make it more conducive for their success. However, with cannabis, even though they're larger, you know, and the total market over a hundred billion, 105 billion. I mean, that's a huge market. That's larger than, you know, over the GDPs of over a hundred countries, you know, it's a huge market, but yet there's no relief in sight. There's no access to financial services or banking. There's no opportunity for interstate commerce. There's no opportunity for tax relief. Maybe I should start a chicken farming staffing company. (laughs) Well, you know, there's opportunities for um, animal feed, especially with chickens, with hemp, um, but even that can't, can't get the support from the federal government. They're still putting up roadblocks for, you know, even for chicken feed using hemp. I mean, so it's a, a lot of the policy from an economics perspective is nonsensical, um, you know, but we, we report the numbers, you know, and then let other people decide. But when you see these numbers that are being generated and the impact that it's having in such a negative way, it really is kind of a head scratcher why there's not um, more of a accelerated reform or at least a, a better sense of urgency in this space. Well, I think to end on a on a positive note to your to your point, right? It's a it is a multi billion dollar a year industry today with limited legislation should be a hundred billion dollar market. So we know in my opinion, like we know where the story ends, but I think we got to get through a lot more hard times. And I think people do just have to come to the realization that this is going to be harder and longer than any of us wanted or hoped for, but there's a huge opportunity at the other side of it. Like I think about so many of these industries that, you know, it's like that kind of were boom and bust, but like they didn't have the fundamental consumer demand. I mean, people love cannabis. It helps so many people. It can change lives. And I mean, that's why people are like looking at me like, why in the world would you run a cannabis hiring company during this time when there's more layoffs than jobs being created? But in a $100 billion industry, there's 2 million jobs. I mean, I, I and so I think for people listening, if you can figure out a way to hang on and make it through, I'm still here because I'm super excited. It sounds like Jeremy is too. I don't know. 
Uh, we're coming up on our last five minutes here, but do you guys want to leave the audience with, with anything? I mean, we need to get reform. We need everyone screaming from the rooftops that jobs are being lost when they should be being created. Go to D.C., write to your local representative, get the word out. we got to get this changed. I, no, look, I'll, I'll just underscore your point, Carson. I mean, I, I think if you read my newsletter um, and if you look at my Twitter feed, you might see a lot of doom and gloom. But, you know, the long-term thesis remains intact. I'm more excited about the future of the cannabis industry than ever. Um, but I think, you know, we do need some more sober, critical thinking about how to influence policy in ways that make sense. And we need a lot more smart people like Bo, like yourself in the industry, engaging with it and thinking about it, um, because ultimately that's what's going to move the needle. And not giving up. I mean, I think there's so many smart, talented people that are just so you use the term Bo, like beat down and exhausted and just like, I'm going to pack up and go home. And that's like. We need people. We need the talent here to help pushing it, keep pushing it forward. So, Bo, I'll, I'll turn it to you for, for the closing remarks. Take us home. Yeah. You know, the way that I view this is that this is an emerging nascent industry uh, and things like this happen. There's people that jump in. They may or may not. They may jump in for emotional reasons rather than for, you know, um, strictly business reasons. Um, and there's bound to be boom and bust cycles within the space. And so right now we're seeing a, a consolidation, you know, and we're seeing this is like the third or fourth round of consolidations that we're seeing. Um, but, you know, I think that what we'll see in the future is a much different uh, industry than what we're seeing now. And I describe this as kind of a race to the starting line. And so once you get to the starting line, there's this huge opportunity, um, not only within the United States, but there's a lot of things going on. I, I track every country um, in the world. I have a forecast and there's there's a lot of opportunity in this space, not only within the United States, but outside as well. So there's I'm very, very bullish on both the uh, medical and adult use as well as the industrial side of cannabis very, very bullish. Well, thank you both for joining. I'd love to do this again at when the next business condition report comes out and hope you guys have a great rest of your day. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Tune into a major journey podcast today, where guests take listeners on journeys and immerse themselves in the roller coaster ride both in and out of the cannabis space that brought them to where they are today. Throughout our conversations, guests share valuable lessons that they've learned along the way that listeners can use to empower growth both in their personal and professional lives. Check out A Major Journey today on all major podcast platforms.